after singing like that together, I hate to start my message with this question, but I need to. What if God were to give total control to Omaha, of Omaha, Nebraska to Satan? What if Satan had absolute control of Omaha? What do you think Omaha would look like? Well, we could have a long conversation speculating. I suspect that, among other things, churches would be filled with people each and every week. I suspect that churches would not only be filled with people each and every week, I suspect that the pastors, week in and week out, would be preaching sermons like these, slaying the giants in your life, overcoming discouragement, steps toward contentment, leadership lessons from an apostle, being a man after God's own heart, becoming a woman of excellence, how to overcome temptation. I think Satan would have preachers preaching a steady diet of sermons like that. Now you might be thinking, Pat... (laughs) How can you say those things? Because I can show you some of those things in Scripture. In fact, I've been here long enough, Pat, to know that you have preached on certain texts of Scripture, and if you haven't used one of those titles, you certainly could have. How can you say that those would be the kind of sermons being preached if Satan were in charge? The gospel is absent. No gospel. And if there's no gospel, you can be inspired a million times over by Bible characters and how-to homilies. But you still have hell to pay. Remember, God didn't give the Apostle Paul as our standard. Remember that God didn't ultimately send Jesus here to show us how we can overcome temptation. God sent Jesus here to live a perfect life for us, to overcome temptation for us because we didn't, we don't. And then, therefore, to have Jesus die a sinner's death on the cross for us so that we wouldn't have to to rise again from the dead and give us new life, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. The Apostle Paul says it is of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15.3. And it is very easy for us to be quote-unquote biblical with lots of how-tos, lots of inspiration, and to forget the very priority that God says is of first importance. All of that to say, please open your Bibles, if you would, if you haven't already, to Romans chapter 4. Satan has not been given carte blanche uh, power over Omaha, Nebraska, so I can say, open your Bibles to Romans, where we will be challenged by, where we will be encouraged by the gospel, 
the good news that God saves, not through us trying harder by learning new leadership principles from Bible characters. But He saves us based upon the perfect work of His Son, based upon the perfect redeeming work of Jesus Christ, the Gospel. That's what we need to hear. That's what we need to preach. That is the only thing, the one and only thing that saves well, Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 has been really ultimately about one thing. Starting in chapter 1, verse 18, we learn about the wrath of God, and then we learn about the wrath of God through the chapter, and then we learn about the wrath of God in chapter 2, and then we learn about the wrath of God in chapter 3, and it has been heavy, it has been thick, but obviously God in His perfect wisdom knew that we would not appreciate, we would not glory in, we would not see the cross for what it really is, we wouldn't see the gospel for what it really is. We might see it as so-so news. If we didn't understand the gravity of our sin and the gravity of our offense against God, but having seen that in Romans 1, 18, through chapter 2, through chapter 3, at least through chapter 3, verse 20, we can now not say, oh God, thank you for the so-so news of sending your son Jesus for us. Having seen the righteousness of God and the sinfulness of our own hearts, we can say, God, thank you for the good news, the extraordinary good news, the gospel news of salvation in your son because we can't do it ourselves. And that's why after it's so thick and heavy, we get to chapter 3, verse 20, and it says, I know I told you to go to chapter 4, but we're getting there, chapter 3, verse 20, where it says, but now, this is after the bad news, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And then he goes on all the way through the end of the chapter, boasting, bragging, declaring how great Christ is and how He is the hero and He is supreme and how He is worthy of our worship. Now, in one sense then, you would think we could move on. You would think we could say, okay, we've got salvation by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone figured out. It has to be that way because sin is so bad that we can't do it ourselves. And if we didn't figure that out after chapter 3, verse 10, then we, we, we learn, you know, it, it's all of Christ. It's all of grace. There's no room for boasting. He gets all the glory, all the honor. And, you know, there's something in us that wants to say, okay, that's, you know, so we can leave that alone, tie it up in a box, move on. Uh, we've got justification figured out that God declares sinners righteous based upon the merits of Christ, period. Let's move on to sanctification, spiritual growth. But we don't. We get to sanctification. It's in chapter 6. But chapter 4 and chapter 5 say the same thing. God in His perfect wisdom understands there are going to be questions in our minds. Questions about how salvation could be all of grace, only through faith in the completed work of Christ. God knows we have questions. God knows there are objections. God knows that we, we perhaps don't have it figured out yet. And so in chapter 4, he answers some of those objections that we might have. In chapter 4, we have an illustration. Perhaps for those of us who can learn better by example, he gives us an illustration, a great illustration. He also defends what he's been saying so far. It's almost as if in this dialogue in Romans... 
Paul has been going on and on and on about the gospel, and he knows there are people listening that are polite, sophisticated enough to not interrupt him, but they've got those questions in their minds. They've got those objections in their minds. And if they're not asking them after Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, he knows they're, they're thinking them. Some of you might be thinking them. If salvation is really all of grace, only through faith, in the completed work of Christ, I've got some questions. Romans chapter 4 is for us. This morning we'll look at Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, and here's the outline. Three details about Abraham. Three details about Abraham. If you're new to the Bible, you'll get caught up a little bit, but Abraham is, is you know, the character of the Old Testament in many senses. He's a hero in the Old Testament. That's enough for now. But three details about Abraham that redirect our focus to Jesus and away from Bible heroes. Three reminders from Abraham, three details about Abraham that redirect our focus to Jesus from or away from Bible heroes like Abraham, like David, like Moses, like Ruth, like Esther, and you fill in the blanks, whoever your greatest Bible hero is, this text is going to challenge you to look to Christ ultimately as the hero. Because every other hero is a lesser hero and every other hero is a sinner. And every other hero ultimately gets their significance, if you will, if they have any, from Christ. So why not see Him as number one? It's masterful the way the Apostle Paul does this. Let's go ahead and look at the first one. Number one, the unrighteousness of Abraham. The unrighteousness of Abraham. If you were a predominantly Jewish audience and I'm saying these things, I suppose I'm getting tomatoes already. Not fresh ones as gifts. I'm getting rotten fruit already. For me to stand up and say, the unrighteousness of Abraham? Yeah. That's what Paul wants to get across to us under inspiration of the Spirit of God for you to remember Abraham is not a righteous man in and of himself. So stop making him your hero. Stop having him be the focus of all of your flannel graphs and have it be that Christ is the hero of all of this. The unrighteousness of Abraham. Verse 1 says in chapter 4, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? Okay, Paul, big shot. Okay, if people are totally sinful, chapter 3, verse 10, and no one is righteous, no, not one, and if salvation is therefore all of grace, only through faith in the finished work of Christ, I've got a question for you. I've got an oversight on your part. What about Abraham? Ah, See, now your argument doesn't hold water. Now Romans 1, 2, and 3 actually doesn't make sense because I've got one for you. His name is Abraham. That's how the reasoning would go. And after all, Isaiah 51, verse 2 calls him the father of the Jews. 
in extra biblical writings that the Jewish people would hold to, would say things like this. And I quote, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Next quote, Abraham did not sin against thee. Next quote, no one has been found like him in glory. Some even believed in Jewish culture that Abraham perfectly obeyed the Mosaic law even though the Mosaic law hadn't even come yet. Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham was righteous. Abraham was perfect in all of his dealings before God. Father Abraham. It's all about him. And you know what you need to do, boys and girls? This is what would be taught in Sabbath school. You need to be like Abraham. Be a great, godly Bible character like Father Abraham. And then it would be preached in the synagogue to the adults as well. We need to look at our father Abraham. What would Abraham do in this situation? Maybe we'll have bracelets made up. What would Abraham do? WWAD. Abraham is the hero of heroes. And you know what? When we're done with Abraham, we'll just move on to another one. Let's move on to David. So next Sunday, we'll have a new flannel graft, or Saturday, I should say, speaking to a Jewish audience, and it will be David, and we will learn leadership lessons from David, our hero, and on the list could go, but he picks the biggest one. He picks the best one. He picks Abraham. He doesn't really fit your paradigm, all are sinners, no one is righteous. That's what you get in chapter 4, verse 1. Then in chapter 4, verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. And and let's just rudely interrupt and stop there for a second. He's saying the logic is good. Okay, you want to use Abraham? And if Abraham actually achieved a righteous status before God, which he needed, and if he achieved that through his efforts and his religiosity, you know what? You're right. Romans 3 actually falls on its face and you can't say no one can boast because Abraham can boast. That's what he's getting at here. So let's do another week of focusing on Abraham. He has bragging rights. Well, it's not what the verse says though, is it? Not entirely. For if Abraham was justified, verse 2, by works, he has something to boast about. And Paul just can't help himself. He's not even to this part yet, but he has to interrupt himself mid-sentence, but not before God. Okay, you have pretty good logic, but I can't even leave it alone to finish a sentence. It's not how it is. He is not justified by works, not before God. He can't brag before God. I need to teach you some things about Abraham. As great as he is, and as respected as he should be, your hypothetical scenario is actually not a true one. We're not going to look at it in detail at this point in time, but for now, let's just scan the verses that follow and see that he is unrighteous. Because in chapter 4, verse 3, if you look with me where it says, uh, what, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, if you need righteousness from God credited to you, that means you lack righteousness. Okay. 
It's not explicitly said, but then keep going. He's still talking about Abraham. Chapter 4, verse 5, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Context is still talking about Abraham. Now, now he has the ungodly label. His faith is credited as righteousness. Then he brings David in in the, in the situation, even though he's still talking about Abraham. He's quoting David from the Psalms in verse 7. Blessed are those whose, whose lawless deeds, still talking about Abraham, have been forgiven and whose sins, Abraham, have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Yes, Abraham has righteousness, but Abraham himself is unrighteous. He gained righteousness from God just as he was forgiven by God. The first reminder from Abraham's life that should cause you to look to Jesus as your hero and away from your Bible heroes is the fact that Abraham, the, you know, the kingpin of the all Bible heroes, was an unrighteous man. He needed to be forgiven. He, he needed righteousness from God. I love that. I love to see that because it rattles my little cage a little bit. It's a good shock value. Abraham's not the exception. And if Abraham's not the exception, neither is David. Neither is Daniel. Our focus, our accolades ultimately go to Jesus. Grace is impressive when we see our great need. Well, if Abraham needed God's salvation... Grace is really impressive to the Jewish mind and it really should be to us. I'm just speculating here. Try to do my best to stick to the text and author's intended meaning. As a speculation, I wonder if one of the reasons why we're so drawn to character studies is because there's something in all of us that wants to work our way to heaven. And you know, if I could just have a, a, a person I'm infatuated with, you know, this Bible character, and I, I'm just all about learning from them, and it's all about them. And, and you know, they're kind of touchable. You know, Jesus is kind of tough to get, get close to, but I, I can get to them, and you know what? If I can somehow see them as earning the favor of God, then, then, then maybe I can too. If you look at history, even church history, default mode of all human beings, is work salvation. Work salvation. Work salvation. I just need to try harder. I just need to do it. I just need to be righteous. I need to go to church enough. I need to, I need to, I need to. And perhaps a half step on the slippery slope among Christendom is when we take our eyes off of Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and we put our focus anywhere else. Don't ever read Romans chapter 4 the same way again would be my exhortation. Just remember, if Abraham needed forgiveness and grace and he got his righteousness only through faith so he can't brag, then that's the only way any of us can get right with God. That's what Paul wants us to see. 
I love it that he wants us to see that. A second detail about Abraham that redirects our focus to Jesus instead of Bible heroes. Number two, the Bible in context. The Bible in context. I'll explain what I mean in a second, but let's go ahead and read verse 3 again. For, for what does Scripture say? <laughs> That's the ultimate trump card. Uh, what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. There you go. You, your, your Jewish tradition says, the Jewish fathers and rabbis say, the extra-biblical writings say he was righteous in all of his dealings be with God. But what does the Bible say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham got his righteousness from God. It wasn't his own, by his own works. And so he's saying, what does the Bible say? I don't care what Rabbi so-and-so says. I don't care how sacred, sacred tradition is. What does the Bible say? Abraham got his righteousness from God. And if we were to continue reading, we've already read it once. And it's in the context of he needed righteousness. He needed forgiveness. Now, the reason I've said the Bible in context is because he quotes, right, Genesis 15, 6. It's right there verbatim. Then he believed the Lord and it was counted or reckoned to him as righteousness. The reason I say the Bible in context, though, is because the Jewish leaders, the rabbis, they would have used the Bible too, right? They memorized the Bible. They knew the Bible, some of them, like, you will never know the Bible. Like, I will never know the Bible. They, 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 they knew the Bible. They knew how to use the Bible. They knew how to quote verses. But that doesn't mean when we know the Bible, we know how to quote verses, we do it with good ethics. That doesn't mean we keep it in context. The greater context, what comes before, what comes after, the great context of God's plan of redemption. As I say so many times, and I'll say it to my dying day, you can make the Bible say anything. But not with ethics intact, in context. See, here's what would happen. Abraham is key to us. Abraham is righteous. Abraham is, is a, a, a wonderful, wonderful example. Be like Abraham. And what do the people get? Let me prove it to you. Genesis 22. Abraham, what an amazing, amazing righteous man. He, he was willing to offer his son in obedience to God. And then you can play upon the emotions of the people. Would you be willing to do that with your son? Oh, we need to be more like Abraham. And here we have more works righteousness being proven, quote-unquote, with the Bible. Right? But not in context. Because in context it would be, before we get to Genesis 22, we have Genesis 15. And we learn that, that Abraham didn't earn favor with God by doing what he did with his son in Genesis 22 because Genesis 15 teaches us that he was declared righteous before God through faith, which is none of his own doing. He has a righteous standing before God only by grace, only through faith. 
See, you can make the Bible stand on its head and do tricks. But not in context. That's why Paul can say to them, the Scripture says. And they could have said, we know what the Scripture says. But it's as if he's saying, the Scripture, in light of the whole, in light of the context, with good integrity, teaches more fundamentally than Abraham's good example with his son that the only hope he had in a bazillion years before God needing righteousness was trusting God, believing God for righteousness. It's very good for us to see that. It's very naive for us to think somehow when Paul says in verse 3, what does the Scripture say that they had no idea what the Scripture said? They would have known full well what the Scripture said, but they were using it to their own agenda for their own means unethically. I do love that statement though, don't you? What does the Scripture say? Now, that'd be a good thing to incorporate in your vocabulary. Right? Well, this is what I think. This is what I think. You know what? This is what so-and-so says. Read his book. Read her book. You know, the, the, the great thing that it comes back to is, what does the Scripture say? Trump card. Not sacred tradition, not church fathers, not anything else. What does the Scripture say? Well, I hope you're moving your focus. I, ho- I hope your, your, your heroes have maybe lost a little status. And God might be moving you away from being so impressed with all of these fallen human beings, Abraham being king of them all, and you're thinking more and more about how great Christ is, which is what Romans is telling us. You're thinking more and more about how amazing He is. Third on the list... Third detail about Abraham that redirects our focus to Jesus instead of Bible heroes like Abraham. Number three, ready for this one? The reality of, we're going to pretend like we're in a theology classroom today. The reality of imputed righteousness. How many of you have used the word imputed in the last week? Okay, how about imputation? All right. Anybody? I see that hand. Somebody play another stanza. Surely there's some... No, I'm kidding. It's a word worth learning because it's used quite often in books that are talking in depth about the gospel. And if it's about the gospel, it's worth learning. The word used probably in your translation, and it's used in mine, is the word credited. But I want you to feel good about yourself as a sinner. And now you know the word imputation. Imputed. It's borrowed from business. It's borrowed from the world of economics. And it's this idea of being credited with something. That you have resources put in your spiritual account, if you will. You are credited with righteousness. It's not that you yourself are righteous, but you have been credited with righteousness. You have been imputed with righteousness. We're not going to talk about this this morning, but all of this sort of ties back to it, and we'll talk about it another time. The reality is, on Calvary's cross, our sin was imputed to Christ. Did Jesus become a sinner on the cross? No, not in a million years. But our sin was imputed to Him. It was placed into His account, if you will, as He was dying in our place, as if He were us. 
And just as our sin is imputed to Christ or credited to Christ, His righteousness, based upon His life and His death and His resurrection, His righteousness is credited to us even though it's not really ours. Because we haven't actually been righteous. That's what Romans 1, 2, and 3 have gone, has gone out of its way to teach. We need righteousness. God is righteous. He's a righteous judge. He requires righteousness. We don't have any. We need righteousness. How are we going to get it? Try harder. No, because even our try harder-ing isn't enough. Because no one is righteous, no, not one. That's what we've learned in Romans 3.10. So when I say number three is the reality of imputed righteousness. For Abraham... He received righteousness that he needed to have a right standing before God, not by doing, because that would make it his own righteousness, but by receiving righteousness from God himself so he could be ready to meet God himself. It's not that hard to understand. In fact, in one sense, this is ABC's basics of Christianity, but we don't talk about it enough. The imputed righteousness of Christ. Well, Abraham had imputed righteousness. It wasn't his own, and that causes... Let's go ahead and see it. Verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? We've already seen that. We've already seen the verse, but now I want you to see imputation. Abraham believed God. It's not works. It's belief. Trust. He believed God, and it was credited to him. It was imputed to him as righteousness. See it. See it again. See it again. And see it again. Question. How did Abraham receive righteousness? Well, it was imputed to him. It was credited to him. But how did he get it credited to his account? It's right there in the text. What's the answer? He believed. He had faith. That's right. It wasn't that he tried hard and then God gave him righteousness, uh, credited righteousness. No. He, He was at the end of his rope. He can't do it. In light of Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. God, I need help. You do it. You You help me. It's a good way of saying believing, trusting, depending. And then God gives Abraham righteousness. He credits righteousness to Abraham's spiritual account, if you will, so he's ready to be in a right relationship with God. This is setting us up to understand the gospel ourselves, but hopefully you're you're seeing if this is the case, if verse 3 is true, then chapter 3, verses 21 to the end are true, that it's only by grace, only through faith. If you have imputed righteousness, you did nothing to earn it because it's not really yours. Well, let's continue to see that this is free according to the context. Chapter 4, verse 4. Now, to the one who works, here's an illustration. It's a great one. Verse 4. Now, to the one who works, he's still using the business image, his wage is not credited as favor or grace, but as what is due. We all understand verse 4, don't we? You have a job, and you work 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours, 70, 80 hours. And at the end of your two weeks, or the end of your one week, or however often you get paid, you get a check. You don't say, ah, grace, free gift. Do you? You say, not in your life is it free, I've been working. I've been working my tail off to earn this money to provide for my family or to go to school or whatever it is. It is anything but a free gift. I worked for that money. I worked hard for that money. Right? 
One, one, one author says this, and I think it's rather interesting, where he, he writes, no employer walks up to an employee, pays him what is due, and says, here's a gift. I thought that was funny because I had an employer, actually, who, in essence, would do that. He's some kind of egomaniac freak. <laughs> and the rest of us, I guarantee you, didn't think, yeah, that's right, a gift. <laughs> After a week of digging ditches, you know, in 95 degree weather. Oh, thank you for the gift. Gift my foot. <laughs> I work for it. Well, he's using this illustration so that we would hear loudly and clearly that if God gives you righteousness based upon the merits of Christ, you did nothing to earn that. Or to turn it around, if you get righteousness supposedly before God by what you've done, it ain't grace. And therefore, when a religious leader even uses grace verbiage and says, what you need to do are the following things. And if you do these things, then God will be gracious to you and He will accept you. You should be going, you should be like that person who gets the check and you say, grace my foot. I work for this. But sometimes people use grace verbiage, but they teach works righteousness. If it's of grace, you did nothing to earn it. If you did something to earn it, it's not grace. It's not grace at all. The illustration is a great one because we can all relate to it. That general illustration and principle in verse 4 now moves into the, the theology of it, to the salvation of it. This is, this is my favorite part. Verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Give it five stars. Underline it. Highlight it. Memorize it. Praise Christ for it. I love verse 5. The one who does not work, but believes in Him. Who, who's the Him? Who justifies the ungodly? His faith is credited as righteousness? In light of Romans chapter 3, we're saying, yeah! That's my favorite verse in the Bible, for, at least for right now. Because I'm ungodly. It should be your favorite verse in the Bible too because you're ungodly. Now, that's the conclusion after chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans. There's, there's not a single godly person on the planet. And so then to read verse 5, Him who justifies the ungodly, oh, can it be? I'm the ungodly. And I can be justified. I can be declared righteous. I, I can have righteousness credited to my account, imputed to my account. How does this happen? How can this be before a, before a righteous God? If it weren't saying it, I wouldn't believe it could be true. Through faith. Through belief. Through trust. Through dependence. That's what belief means. This is amazing. God justifies, it says, the ungodly. Please notice the contrast that's supposed to be noticed in verses 4 and 5. I underlined it. Now to, here's what I underlined, the one who works, then look at verse 5. 
the one who does not work. He wants you to see. The one who works, it's not going to get him there. It's the one who does not work for their salvation. He wants us to see the contrast. The one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Please also notice that that this idea of works and belief are in two different galaxies. Okay, Because sometimes we think faith is a work. Clearly in Romans 4, faith is over here and, and works are over here and they're totally separate. Two different galaxies. God doesn't do His part and my contribution is faith. No, your contribution is to, by the grace of God, see you can't do it. You're totally spiritually bankrupt. And, and, and as the illustration goes, it's the empty hand of faith. I got, I got nothing, God. This is the good news. This is gospel news. This is amazing news. But it is absolutely scandalous to our fallen sinful hearts. I can do it. I can do it. I believe in the gospel of God helps those who help themselves. I'm an American. I pull myself up by my bootstraps and and I can do it. You know, there's something in us, in our fallen, sinful human hearts, even though God says there's none righteous, no, not one. He says it in both Testaments. We call God a liar, as First John would say, and we say we have no sin, or at least no such sin as that. There's something in us that wants to say, no, I can do it. And then we're surrounded by other people who say, you can do it. Religious leaders, every religious religion on the planet in one way or another is going to be somehow doing this thing of saying, you must, and then God will. And people hate this verse and this reality. I wish they didn't. I wish more people loved this verse and preached this and proclaimed it and praised Christ as He should be praised. Listen to what Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, wrote in his inspired translation. He, 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 he. This is his translation of this verse. Verse 5. Him who justifieth not the ungodly. The text says, with all the manuscript evidence backing it, he who justifies the ungodly. I can't do that if I'm a religious leader apart from Christ. I need people to do the right thing. To do what I tell them to do. And so my translation, the inspired translation, him who justifieth not the ungodly. Switching religions, Canon 7, section, session 6 of the Council of Trent says, and I quote, this is, this is a good one in light of what we've just heard. If anyone should say that men are justified merely by the imputation of the justice of Christ or the righteousness of Christ. And by the way, that's exactly what I've been saying. If 
anyone should say that men are justified merely by the imputation of the justice of Christ or that the grace by which we are justified is a mere favor of God, merely the grace of God in other words, let him be anathema. Well, that's human religion for you. And by anathematizing the gospel, they've anathematized themselves. And they've certainly anathematized me and the Apostle Paul and Abraham and Christ and down the list it goes. Folks, this is a big deal. God says He justifies, declares righteous the ungodly and it's all of grace and only through faith based solely upon the work of Christ. Do you believe that? If you do, you believe the gospel. And by the way, ultimately when we don't get that, it's because we don't understand how sinful we are. Because if I can agree, if I can sign off on Romans 1, 2, and 3, I can't do anything good. The only way I could ever be saved in a million years is if God did it for me. It's just how it is. Not to mention Ephesians 2. We don't understand how bad sin is. And you know what else we don't understand when we do this with our human religions? We don't understand what Jesus did. Because if you read the end of Romans chapter 3, Jesus fully and completely propitiated. He satisfied the wrath of God. Christ is our righteousness. He earned favor from God for us. If you get the cross, there's only one conclusion. You get your sin, you get the cross. The only way to gain righteousness, to have righteousness, is to have it imputed. And the only way to have it imputed is by faith, by believing what's already been done for you. And there's nothing I get more excited about than this in life because this is the gospel. This is where it starts. This is where it ends. Christ was punished for me. I get his righteousness through faith. By the way, let's start getting things wrapped up and let's continue moving on through this. Here's what Paul does next. In good Jewish fashion, he's cited the Pentateuch. He cited Genesis as his primary argument. You know how I know this is true about Abraham? I'm going to quote our most authoritative resource. I'm going to quote the Pentateuch. I'm quoting from the first five books. I'm quoting from Genesis, Genesis 15. But in good Jewish fashion, this isn't so relevant to us, but it would have been to his original audience, I will now quote from either the writings of the prophets. This is what the Jews would have done as they're building an argument. And so he's going to do the same thing. And so he quotes from the Psalms. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. It says essentially the same thing, but he's now relying on David. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. This is exactly what David talks about when he talks about this crediting, about this imputation apart from works. And then he quotes Psalm 32 and verse 7, and he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. And whose sins have been covered. Verse 8, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. He, he's saying the exact same thing with a little bit different emphasis in a little bit different way. But he's saying, look, I've got the Pentateuch on my side and, 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 and Abraham and I've got David on my side. You know what? This is biblical. 
Yes, there's other things we're learning. We're learning about how, how, how forgiveness is tied to justification, and there are more details there. Maybe we'll talk about them next time. But the idea is, the big picture is, he's saying the same thing. There's only one right way to God. There's only one way to be right before God. There's only one way for you to get the righteousness that you so desperately need. And it is to have it credited to you from God based upon faith. So when we've been learning in summary, Romans 1, 2, and 3, salvation is only by grace and only through faith, only in Christ, and your objection is Abraham. I'm glad you brought it up because actually he proves my point. He proves Romans chapter 3. And you know what? If you want to bring David into this situation and bring him up into this, you know what? He says the same thing too. It's only by grace, only through faith, only in Christ. I don't think Satan's in charge of Omaha. He doesn't have free reign of Omaha. But he sure seems to be meddling. Sermon after sermon after sermon about how you can overcome temptation. Just be like Jesus. Now, you say, Pastor, I think you've taught about that kind of stuff before. You can probably look online or get the audio. and Absolutely. And if we were in Matthew 4 today, I would preach on Jesus overcoming temptation and I would point to you how He relied upon the Scripture and how you need to rely upon the Scripture too. Thus, it would be good to memorize Scripture so when you're tempted, you can side. I absolutely would go there. Please don't think I'm trying to throw out the baby with the bathwater. But I would be not, not, not a good pastor and I would not be faithful if I made Matthew 4 or any of the Gospels or anything in Scripture ultimately about that. Jesus didn't come here with His main objective being to teach sinners how to overcome temptation. If He did, what in the world is the cross for? If He did, why in the world did He say, I came to give my life as a ransom for many? What he really needed to do is just teach us how to overcome temptation. He came here to live for us, to overcome temptation for us because we lack the ability to. And to die for us. And to rise again from the dead for us. So please, as you read Jesus, and as you read the Gospel accounts, make sure Jesus points you to Jesus. In other words, make sure Jesus and the life of Jesus and, the, and all that He did and all that He taught, make sure you're impressed with it, but make sure you see that Jesus ultimately should point you to Jesus, meaning Jesus points you to the cross. And that's the ultimate example, but please see that when you look at Daniel or David or whoever. If David is your big hero, you might want to remember he's a murderer. That's not a very good leadership principle. You might want to remember that he was an adulterer. No, that's not a very good leadership principle either. Well, we just take the ones that we want. It at least deserves some good, healthy reflection on, a, on our infatuation 
with Bible heroes. Ultimately, in the end, if Abraham is the greatest one of all, the Jews would say that. And Abraham was a sinner needing imputed, (laughs) imputed righteousness based upon faith in God's revelation, ultimately in Christ. Why isn't Jesus your greatest hero? And why isn't Jesus your greatest hero not in that you're trying to do everything he did? Got news for you, it's not going to happen. And he didn't come here so you would learn how to do everything he did. He came here to do everything for you because you can't. End of story. Period. Paragraph. There is another paragraph that does call you to be Christ-like as a Christian who now has been forgiven and who now has Christ's righteousness and now has the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And we're going to get to Romans chapter 6 in time. And we really are called to live godly lives. Now that we have Christ's righteousness, we're supposed to live like we have Christ's righteousness. But we typically blur the two, skip the first, go to the second, And even if we don't mean to, even in many of our evangelical pulpits, we are preaching works righteousness even if we don't mean to. We've got to get back to the gospel. We've got to get back to Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the hero. Pray with me and that's what I'm going to ask for. God, thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Help us to speak of Jesus as the King, as the Lord of Lords, as the King of Kings, and as the ultimate and great Savior long before He is the ultimate and great example. Lord, may we boast in the cross. May we boast in our own insignificance and Christ's significance so that lives, yes, indeed, would be transformed for the glory of Christ. Lord, may we go back and back and back again to the gospel, to the gospel, to the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners based upon the merits of Christ. May that be what moves us what drives us, what ignites our praise and thanksgiving to you, the great Christ. In his name we pray, amen.